Welcome everyone to a very special episode of Family Law and More. This episode is dedicated to the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women and Girls. And today we're joined by a very special guest, Lucy Hadley, who is the Head of Policy at Women's Aid. And she's here to discuss this critical day and also the vital work that Women's Aid do. And also the work that we do here at UNIT and in the family law system for women and girls all over the country. So welcome, Lucy. Hi, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Lucy, I wonder whether we can kickstart this episode by you sharing with our listeners a bit about your background and I suppose how you found your way into this critical role at Women's Aid, because it seems to me it's a role that requires passion and belief. So just, you know, is there a personal connection for you? Just tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you. Well, I've worked at Women's Aid for seven years now, which um, seems like quite a long time, but actually in comparison to the, the many years that some of my colleagues and, and women in our sector, in the domestic abuse sector, have worked in these support services, it's, it's really actually got a fraction of that. I worked in, in other policy areas before joining Women's Aid. So I worked for Member of Parliament and in local government and in an international NGO. And I think all of those roles really gave me a passion and a desire to work in women's rights specifically, because I think when you work on policy issues, you just realise how everything from, you know, health to loneliness to outcomes for in education and employment, all of those things are affected and shaped by women's rights and women's inequality in society. And I found that in in all of my previous roles that, you know, I was I was really passionate and moved by the stories of women that I worked with. And so whilst I hadn't worked on domestic abuse kind of specifically, I had no, you know, specific personal experience of it myself. It was definitely a, a role that was of real interest to me from, you know, from that background working on working on the kind of women's rights more generally. And I think once you start working in in the domestic abuse area, you realise that it is it's literally just everywhere. And once you work for a women's charity, no matter where I go, what event I'm at, and I tell people I work for Women's Aid, you know, you're very likely to get someone disclosing either domestic abuse that they've experienced or or that's happened to their family or friend. And that's something, you know, now that I see on a day-to-day basis, whereas perhaps 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been quite so aware myself of the scale of this issue and, and just how many women and children it impacts. So does it surprise you still that you have that lived experience, i.e. it's more common than not for someone that you meet for the first time to share something or seven years in, do you almost become conditioned to it? I think sadly you do become, it becomes very normalised and actually now, you know, sometimes at weddings I won't say what I do because yeah, I don't yeah. necessarily want, want that experience and I think, you know, I know that that's true of, of my colleagues here too. But I think what is very powerful is just realising how many different types of women it impacts, whether that's a best friend that's recently gone through a very controlling relationship or it's a family friend that, you know, is is struggling with legal aid and still in kind of financial proceeding seven years after divorce, you know, seven Mm. years after separating from a partner. You you know, you just see the, the range of different forms it takes, I guess, and the impacts it has. So... I think it continues to surprise me in that in that way. And so having been at Women's Aid now for seven years, how involved were you with the Domestic Abuse Act? Yeah, so I worked on the Domestic Abuse Act kind of throughout my time at, at Women's Aid, really. It feels like it was first suggested 
think by Theresa May in 2017 and didn't become law till 2021. So wow. for the majority of my time here, I've had some kind of involvement in the idea of, of a new law on domestic abuse to, I guess, a big kind of government consultation on what that law should include. And, and from Women's Aid's perspective, you know, what was first initially kind of suggested by the government was a very narrow criminal justice piece of, of legislation. And we know that, you know, only around one in five women don't think domestic abuse will report to the police, but many other women, you know, they won't have criminal justice processes, but they will have family law proceedings. They may have social care interaction. They may have health, housing needs, you know, needs around their children. So we really wanted to see that law expand beyond the criminal justice system and, and you know, really respond to the impact that domestic abuse has on, on every aspect of a woman's life. So that's what we were really fighting for throughout that time. And, you know, we we were beset, I guess, by Brexit and by the much, much political instability at the time. So it was a long, long journey, but we were really pleased to see that by the time it reached Royal Assent and became an act of parliament, that it was, you know, had that much wider scope. It did address housing issues. It did address family court issues. It included children as victims of domestic abuse in their own right. It, you know, it was a lot stronger. There were, of course, huge emissions. And, you know, very sadly, it's not something we can fully celebrate because it continued to exclude migrant women from support altogether. So, you know, there were major things that, that we didn't see the government agree to. But it was, you know, it, it, it really did go on a journey, I guess, from that first proposal to the time it, it was passed in law. Amazing. Must be very proud. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it was some that lots and lots and lots of organisations and people in Women's Aid worked on very closely. So it certainly wasn't just myself. So Lucy, can you explain a little bit about the history of today, of this International Day and what it signifies for our listeners? Yeah, definitely. Well, this is a, a really important international day and it focuses on ending violence against women and girls. So it's the International Day for Elimination of Violence Against Women and Girls. It's followed by 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. So between now and the 10th of December, which is Human Rights Day, we have 16 days where we are campaigning for better protection, supports for women and girls experiencing violence and abuse, and also for to prevent it and end it for good. So it's a really important time for our movement, really, these 16 days that were set up and, and focus on this specific issue because it is, you know, an international global problem. It's one of the most persistent and severe human rights violations that, you know, happens to so many women in various forms. So, you know, it includes domestic abuse, sexual violence, harassment, forms of abuse, like so-called honor-based abuse, forced marriage, FGM. Um, it takes many different forms, but it is all underpinned by the same problem, which is women's inequality, sexism, misogyny, and attitudes and beliefs about women and that's what we need to change so coming together on this day to to really focus on this issue is so important and I'm, I'm really pleased that your podcast is, is is doing that because we need to increase awareness that is absolutely the first step to preventing these forms of, of violence and abuse. Yeah, absolutely and I think it's really interesting and important that it's not just a performative thing this isn't just a day it's actually followed yeah. by many days of actual mm. real action and campaigning. And can you tell us a little bit about the sorts of campaigns that, that we see around this time of year in these 16 days and what sort of forms they take? Yeah, there's an enormous range. So here in, in England and, and the UK, we 
you know, we have many events in the domestic abuse and violence against women and girls sector. We often have kind of parliamentary events and awareness raising with politicians about this day. You'll see debates in parliament, speeches in parliament about violence against women and girls in this period, which are obviously really, really powerful. We also see lots of kind of a more activism type campaigning, whether that might be protests, online actions and campaigns that you can support, you know, a, a real range of different opportunities to get involved. We see now that workplaces and organisations actually take a, a really, really great stand in highlighting this day, maybe inviting guest speakers into their organisations, into your workplace, having us focus on this in team meetings, all of those kind of things, because this isn't an issue that is kind of contained to the home. This affects everyone. It has a massive cost to society, as well as to, you know, businesses and employers. The amount of women whose performance is impacted by violence and abuse, whose careers are affected by it, you know, it's, it's something that affects absolutely every sector of society. So it's really important we see a range of different sectors and, and organisations, as well as our own, focusing on, on this day. Yeah, I think it's really key to highlight how much this permeates across the class system, race, ages. Yeah. It can affect so many women and girls across the world of all types. And we've actually got some statistics here that have come from the UN. I've got the one in three women have experienced physical or sexual violence, and that's usually by an intimate partner. Also that almost three in five women who were killed are killed by their partner or their family. And that was a statistic taken from 2017. And also that approximately 15 million adolescent girls aged 15, or I think that's supposed to say age 10 to 15 worldwide have experienced forced sex at some point in their life. And those are really shocking statistics. I mean, I um, don't know, you may not, but if you have any any other statistics at the top of your head that may interest our listeners. Yeah. So one of the most shocking statistics for us at Women's Aid is the fact that three women every fortnight are killed by a partner or ex-partner. And that figure, you know, has remained really consistent um, mm. since I've been working at Women's Aid and, and for many years before. And people often think of violence when we see it reported as, you know, might people's associations might be gang violence, knives, you know, the kind of reports we often get in the, the press around violence and think of it as, as a predominantly men's issue. It is a men's issue, but it's a men's issue that's affecting women and girls because as a woman, you're, you know, statistically the most likely place that you, you know, if you are the victim of a murder, it's likely to be in your home. And that's just not something I think as a society that we really get our heads around when we think about problems of violence in society. The nature of violence impacting women is just very different from that of men. And, you know, that statistic continues to shock people whenever I say it to someone that doesn't know much yeah. about domestic abuse. That is obviously the most extreme end. And, you know, the, the other the other side of it is the fact that women day in, day out are experiencing kind of patterns and incidents of domestic abuse. And, you know, the volume and scale of that is just hard to comprehend. So the police in the year ending March 2022, the police recorded one and a half million domestic abuse incidents and crimes which is just, you know, it's enormous. And that's obviously only those incidents and crimes that were reported to the police. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There were many more that victims never spoke to the police about at all. So it's, yeah, it's a truly shocking issue in terms of its scale and prevalence and how many homes up and down the country this is impacting. And Lucy, this might sound like a silly question, but 
what is the mission and vision values of women's aid? You've spoken very passionately about, I suppose, what you want to see by way of change, clearly reducing those stats is one, but what's women's aid contribution to trying to achieve that? Mm. So women's aid is actually approaching our 50th birthday next year. We were founded in 1974, so in 2024 we'll be 50. And back then we were first brought together to unite around 40 refuge services for women and children that were operating kind of around the country and had emerged as part of the women's movement in the 70s. We brought them together as a national network and we've developed and and grown that national network now to over 180 domestic abuse services across England, which is amazing. So we're a federation of, of those 180 services and they're delivering amazing, life-changing support to women and children, whether that's in refugees or, or in the community. I guess, firstly, we want to ensure that every woman and every child experiencing domestic abuse is safe and gets the support that they need, because at the moment that, that just isn't the case. That must be the immediate priority from Women's Aid's perspective for national government, for local governments, for police forces, for housing teams, you know, for all of those agencies involved ensuring that women are safe and supported to escape and recover from domestic abuse is critical. And at the moment, you know, the last year that we had data, um, around 61% of referrals to refuge services in England were declined. And often that's because of lack of space in the refuge. So we're not at a place where every woman trying to leave an abusive partner, and you know, we all know how difficult that is, barriers to doing that, you know, before you even get to the point that you could try to leave there's been so much hurt harm and yeah so much difficulty in in disclosing domestic abuse and coming forward to seek help so when you do you want every woman doing that to get the right response and to be able to access the support she needs and unfortunately at the moment that is not the reality and that is really not the reality for those who face additional forms of discrimination for black and minoritized women for migrant women for women with disabilities and all of those groups face additional hurdles and barriers to to getting the help they need. So that's our kind of, I guess, our primary aim. But we also want to, you know, we want to work to end end domestic abuse. We want to raise awareness about healthy relationships, educate young people and work with children and young people to prevent this in the long term. And, you know, we also do a lot of work to shift laws, policies and hopefully society on the need for change on, on domestic abuse. So we're, you know, we're proud to have campaign for, for many, many improvements to protection and, and support for women throughout our 50 year history, whether that's been, you know, additional housing rights. We were heavily involved in the new criminal offence of coercive control in 2015. So recognising those non-physical tactics of abusers that really underpin domestic abuse um, and recognising that in law. And of course, as we mentioned, the Domestic Abuse Act. But yeah, we still have a long way to go, unfortunately, in 2023 before we can stop stop our work. And is funding an ongoing issue for you as an organisation? Guessing, I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, sadly, sadly so. Yes, it is. And I guess we tend to talk even more about the funding for our member services. So they exist on on really shoestring budgets and really insecure funding arrangements across the country. There's just such a patchwork of, yeah. of funding for these life-saving services. You know, this isn't a nice thing for women to have. This is absolutely about protecting women's safety and right. And yet it is too often a lottery in terms of 
of, of where you can access support and how consistent that is. And the demand for, for our members' services just remains really, really high. It was obviously a, a huge issue in the pandemic in terms of how effectively they could even operate with those restrictions. So running a refuge service, mm-hmm. you know, when you're dealing with a infectious disease is incredibly hard. And I think since the pandemic, we've obviously seen, seen the rising cost of living and that, you know, impacting women experiencing domestic abuse even, even more greatly, but also the, the services that are there to support them are facing increased costs without any further funding. So it's a really difficult time. Join us after the break and find out what's coming up next in Family Law and More. Coming up on Family Law and More, the pupillage preparation series continues. Lisa, Isabel, Rog and I will be discussing how to approach the pupillage gateway and written applications. So Lucy, we are of course family law practitioners and I wonder if we could discuss with you a little bit about the family justice system and um, the challenges faced by women and girls within this system. I know for us, uh, a big problem that we face or that we see women facing within the system is if there is a violent ex-partner who is the parent of the child, Mm. um, the mother is understandably anxious about letting the child go and spend time with this parent they're worried for their safety because they know what this person may be capable of and they don't think it's safe. But then on the flip side, you have the the dad in sort of a traditional setting, but of course it could be a mother as well, making allegations of parental alienation, saying that the mother or the other parent is deliberately alienating the child against them and keeping them away and fabricating these allegations of domestic abuse. So do you have any insights to offer in respect of that problem? Is that something that you are also seeing from women's aid perspective? Yeah, sadly, it remains, I guess, the number one issue mm. that survivors of domestic abuse raise with us. And I think I I didn't really appreciate this when I started the, the job, but it makes complete sense because, you know, you take all those steps that we've talked about in terms of how difficult it is to leave an abuser perhaps even the police are involved, social services might have been involved and, and tell you to leave the abuser. That's their advice in terms of keeping yourself and your children safe. And then you're thrust into a family court system that then refuses to believe those allegations or the evidence of domestic abuse that you might have, diminishes it, it doesn't have proper understanding of, of the impact and the dynamics of domestic abuse and how it impacts children, particularly, as I, as I mentioned, those kind of non-physical tactics and coercive and controlling behaviour. And so women talk to us like every day, really, about how re-traumatising, scary and horrific their experience in the family courts is. And it is truly horrendous, some of the the experiences of, of women going through the family justice system. You know, we have reported twice at Women's Aid on children killed as a result of unsafe child contact arrangements with perpetrators of domestic abuse. We've done two reports, one in 2004, one in 2016 on that issue. And, you know, if that isn't a wake up call to say, you know, the family court should have the safety and welfare of the child as their kind of primary consideration when any allegation of domestic abuse is made. I don't know what is, but sadly, you know, too often women report that that understanding of risk and harm just isn't there. And exactly as you say, when women make valid allegations, 
and present evidence, including evidence of police police investigations, evidence of, of conviction, evidence from other professionals, that that is discounted and their allegations are, are met by the perpetrator accusing them of so-called parental alienation, which is a concept with no legal or scientific basis. And, you know, I mean, it is Kafkaesque really when you think about it in that you've got women alleging and reporting domestic abuse in the family courts who then, you know, in some cases have their children removed because they're accused of being alienated. It's a truly desperate situation. And I think, you know, we were really hopeful a couple of years ago when the Ministry of Justice produced a, a report called the Harm Panel Report in, in 2020, which we, we were part of developing, which is really a landmark report and had such powerful recommendations for how this system should change. Unfortunately, we, we just haven't seen that realised in, in practice. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it's a source of yeah, I guess extreme frustration for us at Women's Aid and the survivors we work with. I think that it is an incredibly challenging area because as we've identified, there's this struggle for victims of domestic abuse and the children that are involved in those cases. But on the flip side, as legal professionals, we do sometimes see those false allegations borne out in court, which is very... Um, I think it puts the court on the back foot and they have to take a particularly cautious approach because they know that there are false allegations sometimes made. And I think it just makes it so much more difficult for real victims of domestic abuse who even have evidence, as you say. I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that. Um, I'd just say that the... I guess that I'm, sure, I'm not denying that false allegations happen. I think the scale of false allegations is not, you know, it's not proportionate to the scale of real allegations yeah. and real harm and real risk to, to women and children. So I just think sometimes there's too much emphasis put on that as a as a problem when really we should be talking about the bigger problem really in in the justice system. There has been research done on false allegations and it, it's, it's quite rare. Though, you know, I, I completely appreciate that these cases are often very very complex there are often not just domestic abuse there might be other forms of harm involved and there are difficult decisions for, for courts to make I absolutely understand that I think what we all would always advocate is that you know proper finding of fact mm. the use of practice direction yeah. 12j following the procedures that have been set out you know to mitigate risk of, of harm from domestic abuse is what courts need to do unfortunately you know we know the pressures the resource constraints are so great that that is often just not the priority and I think that's a real that's a real concern and you know we we do call on the government to ensure that the, the resources are there that the courts can deal with the the number and volume of cases yeah you know, it's about 60 percent by our the work we did with Kafka around 60 percent children proceedings involve an allegation of domestic abuse so you know the resources need to be there for those allegations to be dealt with properly Absolutely. And as I think you've identified, part of the issue is the delay that it can take from when an, an application goes in to actually getting mm. the matter before the court. It can take months and months and these things can drag out for years, private applications in particular. And the re-traumatisation that you've already spoken about, if you're back embroiled with an abusive ex in court proceedings for years, it's obviously going to have a detrimental impact, not only on the victim, but also on any children of that relationship. Exactly, yeah. Do you think, Lucy, that part of the answer is 
further training for judges, legal professionals, social workers? We would 100% agree with that. We think that all agencies and judges and magistrates involved in, in family courts, but also in, in other, you know, in other areas such as policing and housing and health need training on domestic abuse. And that training shouldn't just be like a, you know, a half an hour online course. It needs to be delivered by specialist domestic abuse services that really understand and can convey the impact and the dynamic of, of domestic abuse on on women and children's lives and, and ensure that professionals really understand the risk and, and the harm associated with it. I think training is, yeah, that is absolutely what needs to happen. The harm panel made recommendations to that effect. Unfortunately, we haven't seen really any meaningful progress there. There's like some great pockets of work up and down the country, but in terms of like a system-wide approach to to training on domestic abuse for all agencies and professionals involved, we haven't seen kind of progress on that. I think that, yeah, it's got to be primary. And it's also about culture change, isn't it? Because I think, you know, that there are so many lawyers and others in the primary justice system who really understand domestic abuse, really want to do the best for, for women and children experiencing it. But the culture of, of the court system is not necessarily conducive to that. It's a frightening, it's a scary place. You know, the, the judiciary is still led by predominantly white men. So there's hope for us there in terms of, you know, changing that culture, shifting that culture, making progress, particularly with women in legal professions that hopefully can can help move this issue on. Lucy, we will need to wrap up very shortly, but just before we lose you, can I just ask you some questions around IDFAs? So for the um, listeners that don't know what an IDFA is, it's an independent domestic violence advisor. And you indicated before that you were significantly involved in the passing of the Domestic Abuse Act. And we can see that IDFAs, um, I think it was from May this year, from memory, there's now um, an assumption that they can come into the courtroom to support victims or survivors of domestic abuse. And again, just from a practitioner's point of view, I'm quite interested to understand the advisor's skill set sort of, you know, what qualifications and maybe what experience they have. And I use that word deliberately because I've had a few experiences myself where the advisor, I think, has herself been through an abusive relationship. And when we're in the courtroom having to deal with evidence and be proportionate in the response to harm, risk of harm, sometimes the views of the IDFA can get in the way a little bit. And I'm sure that's not what the legislation is designed for. You know, they're there to support the victim and the survivor. But what's your understanding of their skills, their qualifications, their experience? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So I think, I mean, at Women's Aid, we talk about specialist domestic abuse services and advocacy services rather than just it was alone. It was one type of advocate in the specialist domestic abuse sector. It's a very important role that, you know, is is very, I think, commonly well understood. But there are there are a range of different advocacy roles. I think, you know, a specialist domestic abuse service works to support and empower a survivor of domestic abuse and does that in a range of different ways that can't be practical help getting them the kind of, of immediate housing, welfare, financial needs. It might be therapeutic kind of emotional support. It is representing their views and voice to different agencies. That's absolutely a really crucial part of it. 
in terms of qualifications, and it has to have had a qualification to be called that. Okay. So that does involve quite a robust training process. There are other qualifications as well that advocate, advocacy services in the domestic abuse sector receive. I think it's it's really important to recognise that yeah, their expertise is on the impact, the dynamics of domestic abuse, the risk of domestic abuse. It's not necessarily on the family justice process. And particularly that is the case because quite often funding for IDVAs and advocacy services comes from a policing and criminal justice perspective. Okay. So predominantly they've been more involved in criminal justice processes and MARAC, if you've heard yes. of MARAC, yeah. multi-agency risk assessment conferences, they've been a crucial part of that MARAC multi-agency system. They've been less kind of known about, I guess, or, or working within the family court space. So I recognise there is probably a, some gaps there in terms of some for full understanding of the family court process. So they may benefit they from been embedded yeah, some training from, from our long. perspective and what the family yeah. justice system looks like. So definitely their role is optimized, definitely. but in a in a safe way that doesn't run the risk of compromising getting the, the best and safest outcome, the outcome for the children. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's definitely, you know, there's some really great work happening across the country in terms of developing IDVA and advocacy services that are specifically family court focused. That is quite a new development. As I say, it's previously kind of focused on the criminal justice system. So I think there's a lot to learn there in terms of the, the join up. Yeah, it'd be nice to have you back maybe in 12 months time to see um, what yeah. progress we, we, we've all made to try and make a, be great. The, the system better for all concerned. Yeah. So just to finish off, Lucy, really quickly, do you have any top resources for anyone who's seeking support at the moment? Maybe just top three? Yes please go to womensaid.org.uk and you can access support. You can access support right now. We have a live chat helpline, which is an instant messenger based helpline. You can find links to lots of other helplines nationally and locally, and you can find the right local domestic abuse service for you. So as I said, we're a federation of around 180 local domestic abuse services. So there will be one in your area that is working to support women and children in, in your community. So please go to our website and look at the domestic abuse directory to find the right one for you or anyone you know and um, might be experiencing domestic abuse. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Lucy. It's been a real pleasure to have you on today and to talk about this incredibly important day and, of course, the following 16 days of activism. And we are going to finish with our usual game of Roll That Day. So, Lucy, happy to roll? Yes, please. And it's landed on career highlight. Oh, lovely. Um, career highlight. I should have thought about this before. Um, <laughs> I was recording, shouldn't I? I think there have been a few that really stick out for me. But I think one of the most powerful, particularly in relation to the conversation we've had today, we have a, a survivor ambassador called Claire Thrussell. And she is a survivor of domestic abuse who went through the family court system and her two sons, Jack and Paul, were murdered by her um, ex-husband on an unsupervised contact visit. She is the most phenomenal woman I've, I've ever met and her bravery in campaigning for, for other women to be prevented from this experience and, and for other children is just incredible. I nominated for her for an MBE and she, she received it for her campaigning work in this area. And I think, yeah, that's probably my proudest, uh, wow. proudest thing I've done. She sounds Amazing. like a remarkable woman. Absolutely. She is. 
Thank you for sharing that with us. So thank you. And we hope to have you on the podcast again in the future. For sure. Thank you so much, Lucy. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Family Law and More. Remember, please, to subscribe, rate and leave feedback. And we look forward to welcoming you to our next podcast episode. Bye now. Bye bye. Thank you.